Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people and how to apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. You can learn more about the program and our church when you visit walkintruth.com. Now here's Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah chapters 61, 4 through 62, 12, called For Zion's Sake. All right, good evening and welcome. Isaiah 61 is what you want tonight. Isaiah 61. Now we only made it through three verses of Isaiah 61 because they were so rich and deserved um, us really doing an in-depth study in them. And these were the verses, at least a portion of verse 2 and and verse 1, where Jesus shared these, remember, in the synagogue at Nazareth. And what he shared was these words, Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me, and God the Father did send God the Son, remember, Isaiah 61, 1. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Remember, at that point, Jesus closed the book and proclaimed, today in your hearing, the scripture is fulfilled. He did not read the rest of verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God, that's his second coming, and I take that as the day of the Lord, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus' second coming will also include a comfort to those who mourn because he will pour out his wrath, but he also will bring comfort to those who have been waiting expectantly for him. So it includes, the day of the Lord includes also the comfort of those who will be delivered from it or delivered from tribulation. To grant those who mourn in Zion, and Zion's gonna be a key as we go forward, giving them, and I want you to see these divine turnarounds, the work of the Messiah, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you for the glory that it reveals to us and how it speaks to our lives and and how tonight it really speaks of a future where if we belong to that kingdom, there will be uh, divine turnarounds that will answer all the deepest questions that really, um, well, really in many ways hurt our hearts. And here it tells us that you've come to mend broken hearts and you are close to the brokenhearted. And one day, Lord, you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And one day there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. The former things, and that's a key phrase, will be passed away. Behold, you will make all things new, including us, which is awesome. And so tonight as we look at your word, we pray that you would encourage your people We pray that you would strengthen the life of any individual who's here who may be a bit poured out, a bit tired, in need of refreshment. I think that's all of us. So we just pray, Father, that you'd bless tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to grant those who mourn in Zion, look at verse 3 with me. In the ESV, it says, to give them 
a beautiful headdress, and the NIV says to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Now, uh, when someone would put ashes on their head, that was a sign of mourning. Uh, It was a sign of mourning for the dead. It could be also a sign of repentance. And what the Lord's going to do when he comes back and when he sets up his millennial kingdom is he's going to give us this beautiful headdress instead of the ashes on top of the head. He's going to give us the beauty of his presence, the oil of gladness, which we talked about is the sign of the Holy Spirit in one's life instead of mourning. He's going to give us the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. These are the divine turnarounds, and this is where we ended last time when we shared together about the Messiah. It says in verse 4, Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, speaking of Zion or Jerusalem. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities. I want you to see three R words there. They will rebuild, they will raise up, and they will repair the desolations of many generations. Now, this is set in a historical context, and we know that the Jews literally did go back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, and they did rebuild. And there was a rebuilding project that happened under Nehemiah and Ezra, and there was the rebuilding of the wall, and then eventually the temple. But the rebuilding that speaks, that's being spoken of here, I think, is also an ultimate rebuilding when the, the city of Jerusalem and Zion, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven and there will be all those beautiful elements that we see in the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22. But there's also a symbolic meaning here, I think, that we can all resonate with. And it speaks of rebuilding of lives, verse 4, the raising up of people who are spiritually dead, and the repairing of our lives. And if you take kind of a spiritual view of this, we realize that's what God's done in our lives. He has rebuilt our lives. He has raised up our lives, spiritually speaking, and he has repaired our lives. And so if you want to just circle those words there, I think we can all um, resonate with that. Look at Isaiah 58, 12 with me, just a few chapters back. It says, and those from among you, Isaiah fifty-eight twelve, will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations, fifty-eight twelve, and you will be called. Notice the involvement of the people now: the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. And so, the involvement of the repair work not only happens to us; we can also give it to others. I like what John shared about. The little girl who wants to give little, you know, hygiene items to people at the Corona Norco Rescue Mission. Why in the world would she want to do that? Why would she want to spend this time of year when most kids are looking to get things, especially high-energy candy bars in mass quantities? If they happen to be Snickers, I particularly have a bent towards Snickers. But, you know, that's, that's the bent. It's a, one of usually the two favorite times of year, Christmas and Halloween. And why? Because we get stuff. We get, we get, we get. But when you see someone have the heart of the Lord and they want to give and give and give, that's an amazing turnaround. It's not natural really to us as humans to want to give instead of getting. Now, Jesus did say it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
But yet, we still like getting, and we pretty much enjoy that. But when you have the heart of the Lord, I think you start to see that not only does he repair your life, but he repairs you to be a repairer in other people's lives. Let me just ask you, are you doing that? You know, sometimes as Christians, we're real good at receiving from the Lord. We want to be fed, and we talk about that, and we want to, you know, receive, and that's good. But we need to give out as much as we receive, you know? And there's different ways to do that, and it can be in different ways like praying, and it can be in very practical ways of serving as well. I think it was J. Vernon McGee who said, there's a lot of fat, lazy Christians, you know? They receive and receive and receive, but then they just sit there and they don't do anything with it. Now, you all know that when you take food into your body, it's good, and depending on what kind of food it is, it's even better or worse, but then you need to work that food off. Food is supposed to be energy. I keep trying to tell tell myself that. Food is energy. That's all it's for, right? But it's also for enjoyment. But the fact is, what the Lord pours into our life, hopefully we become a channel for him to pour through us. That's really what the Messiah modeled. He was sent by his father to what? To heal, to, to go around, remember in the book of Acts, doing good. And the more that we do that, I think the more we find the beauty of what the Lord's called us to do. In, in Isaiah 61, 5, it says, And strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. This speaks of um, foreigners and, and Gentiles coming together in cooperation with the Jewish people. And that is obviously another aspect of when the Lord touches your life, walls seem to fall down between races. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, we may be shocked at this, but there's still a lot of racism in our country. But when you become a Christian, uh, whatever, however you were raised, whatever rhetoric came your way, um, whatever is valid, whatever is not, you know, that seems to go away in Christ. Uh, Dr. Walter Martin one time said, the only color that God sees is red, the red blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't worry about that kind of stuff. And the walls that separated people come down in Jesus Christ. The wall of separation in Ephesians 2 comes down because he is our peace who makes the two into one new man. Salvation reaches beyond just a spiritual recovery in the sight of God, which is awesome and and most important. But then it starts to move out horizontally where relationships and tensions that were once there can come down. Walls can come down in a multitude of ways. And here in, in this picture of the restoration, there's people working together. But you will be called, in verse six, the priest of the Lord. This, in Exodus 19.6, this was God's original plan for Israel. It says in Exodus 19.6, write it in your margin, you shall, be called, uh, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. But Israel largely failed to be priest unto God because they became very self-focused and, and they became people who were especially in their religious leadership, pushing others away rather than welcoming them in. But in this day, you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of, look at verse 6, Isaiah 61, as ministers of our God. And you will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches, you will boast. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. 
Thanks for tuning in to Walk in Truth today. Did you know there's more where that came from? Download the Living Truth app to listen to more of Pastor Michael's teachings whenever you want. You can even watch videos. And if you're local to Southern California, you can get updates on church events, new studies, and more. Download the free Living Truth app today. Producer Rob Newton here, and on behalf of Pastor Michael and the Walk in Truth team, thank you so much to our financial and prayer partners. Whether you have given a one-time donation or you have become a monthly partner, you have contributed to our mission to reach out with God's truth to all people and helping listeners like you apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. You've heard that before, right? Well, we mean it. Thanks to our financial partners, we have added three new radio stations. Our prayer is to bless our new listeners the way we have hopefully been a blessing to you. If you're a long-time listener, would you please consider becoming a $5 a month partner? That may not seem like much, but every little bit makes it possible for us to continue our broadcasts, podcasts, and free apologetic events. Please become a partner giving at least $5 a month. Visit walkintruth.com to donate or call 844-48-TRUTH. That's walkintruth.com or call 844-48-TRUTH. We'd love to see who's listening, so please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just do a search for Walkin' Truth Show. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. Israel largely failed to be priest unto God because they became very self-focused and, and they became people who were, especially in their religious leadership, pushing others away rather than welcoming them in. But in this day you will be called priest of the Lord. You will be spoken of, look at verse 6, Isaiah 61, as ministers of our God. And you will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Revelation 1.6 says, He has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory, the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. That's what we are called to do. Now, what does a priest do? If we're a kingdom of priests unto our God, if we're a holy nation, then what is a priest? What is the priestly function? We like to talk about that every Christian really has, a, has in this sense, a priestly function. Well, the priest really represented God to the people and the people to God. So one thing that we can do in representing God to the people is 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are God's ambassadors as though God were, remember the verse, pleading through us that people would be reconciled to God. That's a priestly function. We are an ambassador. Now, we had an ambassador killed in another country. There's been a lot of talk about what happened there. But he was representing the United States to another country. And that soil, if you will, was U.S. soil. And in the same way, God says, my church, you are ambassadors. You're speaking on behalf of the king. The king is, is at the right hand of God, but he's living through and, and ministering through his church. And so when you go and speak, on behalf of the king, and you speak his word, you are becoming his ambassador. You are representing the king to others. And that's a priestly function. So you represent God to the people and the people to God. You come to God uh, as a priest, and what do you do? You intercede for the people. So you pray, and that's one thing that God's called us to do, to pray for all people, kings, all who are in authority, because God wants all people to be saved and to become and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we need to spend time praying for people and we need to spend time sharing with people. 
I heard someone once said, talk to God about people and then talk to people about God. Talk to God about people. Lord, I'm praying for this individual, this family member, and then talk to people about God. And then go to that person and say, you know what, I've been praying for you. Do you know the Lord? Or I've noticed that you know, you've kind of backed away from your, your uh, church attendance or your service of the Lord. What's going on? How can I pray for you? And I think that's one way that we serve the Lord. And instead of your shame, verse 7, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. And notice this, and this has to be heartening to everyone, especially think of the, the redeemed of Israel, and everlasting joy will be theirs. How does everlasting joy sound to you? Sound pretty good? You know, I would like to say that I have everlasting joy, but my joy is not everlasting. Not now. You know, I know joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and I know that walking in the Spirit produces joy, but I have to confess, I don't have that ever-ready bunny of joy thing going on quite yet. Sometimes my joy-o-meter goes down a little bit, and I need to refresh that joy. So, Everlasting joy will be theirs, and they will have a double portion. Right in your notes, Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, where it says that the firstborn is to get the double portion. And in this particular verse, it's the firstborn of the unloved wife. God basically says if a man has two wives, one of them feels loved and the other unloved, Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, a double portion will go to the firstborn of the unloved wife. As you begin to see the picture, you begin to see that that's how Israel felt. Israel felt like the unloved wife. I don't know if there's a worse feeling in all the world. To be in a relationship that's supposed to be one of love, but to feel unloved. It could be in a parental relationship. It could be, you know, parent to to son or daughter, vice versa. But here the picture is of a marriage. And the Bible tells us that husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Boy, gentlemen, we better start right there. That's a big part of our witness right there is our household. And really, you know, we've talked about this in the past. It's an impossibility for me to love my wife as Christ loves the church, unless Christ is loving my wife through me. And that is the key. And a double portion will go to this one who, you know, notice instead of humiliation, which, you know, when you think about uh, the land of Israel, think of the humiliation, just think of the, um, the Holocaust. Uh, when I was in Israel, and you know, I would encourage you guys, if you, if you get a chance, let me, let me just ask you, because I know there's a Holocaust museum, I think it's in New York. Has anybody been to the Holocaust museum? Uh, there's one in Israel, and when you go there, I don't know how to describe the feeling that you feel. It's like you don't want to do it, but you know you need to do it. And when you walk through the museum, they have all these old artifacts. There's shoes, of uh, prisoners, there's uh, some of the uniforms that they used in the concentration camps. And then they have photographs. 
and uh, name after name after name of people who perish in the Holocaust. And when you see the photographs of people being treated like animals, it is absolutely heart-wrenching. You could easily spend a day in there, but about two hours is about all you can take. And when you exit the Holocaust Museum, all you can do is shake your head at the atrocities that humans can uh, put upon other human beings. The humiliation that those people were put through for what reason? Because they were Jewish? Because they, they, didn't, they weren't part of a superior race? Because they, they didn't you know, believe like we do or whatever? And we think, you know, that's, that's the past. Oh, it's not that long ago. And it's happening today. There's human trafficking happening today in, in the world. There are, there are Christian ministries that are raising money just to buy kids out of slavery today. And humiliation has been a big part of the history of this land. The land, the, the city of God has been trampled, devastated. But that city, those people are going to get a double portion. Look at verse 7 and I love this, and I would encourage you to mark it because it's going to be true of you as well. An everlasting joy will be theirs. That's ahead for us. Everlasting joy. We talk about everlasting life, but what we're going to get as a fringe benefit of that life is everlasting joy. Wow. For I, the Lord, verse 8, love justice, and I hate the robbery and the burnt offering. The Septuagint says, I hate robberies of injustice, and that may be a better way to render it. And I will faithfully give them their recompense. Now, God is saying, look, part of the reason why there's going to be everlasting joy is I'm going to make things right. I love justice. The Lord is a God of love, but what else does he love? He loves justice. We don't talk a lot about that in the church. People say, Today, God is love. It's true, God is love. But God also loves, what? Justice. And he is going to make things right. That's what this uh, reign of Christ is about. He says, I hate robberies of injustice. God hates them. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. God will keep his promises to the Jewish nation. You can think of Jeremiah 31, 34. And then their offspring will be known among the nations. It will be clear that they belong to the God of Israel. And their descendants in the midst of the peoples, all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring of the Lord, uh, offspring whom the Lord has blessed. They will be recognizable by all people because they will say, there's those people who have the special blessing of the Lord. Right in Galatians 3.16 in your margin there. It says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham, Galatians 3.16, and to his seed. He does not say, uh, and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, and that is Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are the seed of Abraham. You are grafted in. And so these promises given now to the redeemed of Israel, guess what? They are also yours. 
You can stand upon these promises. And when the people see you, they will say, there are the blessed of the Lord. Those people. And today, I hope we're that recognizable today. Now, of course, none of us walks around with a halo over our head. We all know that. You know, there's not a, one of those red you know, uh, arrow signs going, grrr, grrr, Christian, grrr. but hopefully the way that we live our lives testifies to the blessing of the Lord. How might that come about? Well, it's going to have to come out by behavior, by the way we walk and the way we talk. I mean, that's going to be it, the way we bless others. And it says now, and this is an unknown speaker, not identified, but I take it as the Messiah, though some ancient commentaries thought it was Isaiah and some a personification of Jerusalem. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. He begins to rejoice about these promises that will come to pass. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now, you want to talk about being, or, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, covered with the, the, the teaching of God, adorned with, this is the word I'm looking for, adorning the doctrine of God, having the adornment of the Spirit. I think Messiah is talking here, and he is adorned, robed with the garments of salvation. That's what he brings. And we saw that earlier in Isaiah 59, when he has a helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness. That's what he gives to us. And notice, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, verse 11, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. One day, there is going to be this planting that comes to fruition. Seeds will have been planted, and they will grow up, and they will be a garden. The image of the garden takes uh, uh, As to the renewal of all things, the new Garden of Eden, listen to this. This picture, the banquet of the Messianic era, an old tradition says that the Holy One, blessed be He, will prepare a wedding banquet for the righteous in the Garden of Eden, close quote. You see, the millennium is really the restored Garden of Eden. That's what it is. It's the tree of life is going to be there and there's going to be a river that flows from the throne of God. It's going to be Eden restored. It's going to be the absence of sin and death and the serpent will be gone. He will be chained, remember, for a thousand years. And the tree of life will be there and it will be for the healing of the nations and the throne of God will be there and the people of God will be there and there will be a banquet. It says, let us rejoice, Revelation 19.7, and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She's decked out. Are you amazed by how long a bride takes to get ready for a wedding day? I don't know. What's the record? Anybody know what the record is? It's usually a couple weeks, I think. (laughs) The hairdo, the makeup. And it's a great thing. And and I, as a pastor, get to witness this. I get to witness the guy who spent 10 minutes on his hair. And, you know, he's in the rented tuxedo, right? And there he is. And then we walk up to the front. But I, I like to watch his face as she comes in. Because he's just... That's kind of a nervous smile. Wow. 
Wow. And the dad's walking down the aisle ready to slug him, you know, as he makes that. No, just kidding. But it's a beautiful thing. And this is the adornment. And all of these things are happening, 62.1, for Zion's sake. God says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. This speaks more of not, not just about not talking, but it speaks about he will not fail to act. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet, means to be still or inactive as well, until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. For Zion's sake, God says, I am going to act. Now, Zion is an interesting word. It's kind of changed throughout the uh, centuries. But it speaks of, it's, its first mention is in 2 Samuel 5, 7. And David took the stronghold of Zion and called it the city of David. When Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, uh, Mount Moriah came to be known as Zion, the prophet Zechariah spoke of the sons of Zion, Zechariah 9.13. But this time, the word Zion had come to be, mean the entire nation of Israel. The spiritual meaning of Zion is continued in the New Testament, where it is given a Christian meaning of God's spiritual kingdom, the church of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You can uh, look at Hebrews 12.2 and Revelation 14, verse 1. So Zion is kind of an all-encompassing term for the city of God and the people of God. And God says, for the sake of, if I can put it this way, my people and my city, I will not be silent, I will not keep quiet. Let me ask you a question. How many things do you do for the sake of Zion? If Zion is the city of God and the people of God, let's, let's make it personal. If Zion is the church of God, How many things can I say I do for Zion's sake? I do a lot of things maybe for my sake or the sake of others, you know, maybe it's familial responsibilities. But how many things can we say we do for the sake of Zion? And could we say, I will not keep silent? If somebody's having a debate in your office about who Jesus is or about something that he's spoken clearly about, do you keep silent? Or will you stand up and say, you know what? I'm part of that city. I'm part of those people. I was in a parking lot one day uh, after a softball game. I was a fairly new Christian. And I was talking to a man. And he was, you know, we were just having casual conversation outside of a pizza parlor. And he he was telling me about a friend of his that was a bit obnoxious. And he said, and he's one of those (laughs) born-again Christians. And I said, Tim, so am I. And he went, what? And then I had to think about what kind of witness I had been to him that he didn't know that. He said, you are? I said, I am. That I am unashamedly a Christian. Now that man who was shocked that night in that parking lot ended up becoming a Christian. He now serves as an elder in a church. You see, we should not be afraid among our buddies, you know, that share hobbies with us or whatever, to stand up for Zion Because her righteousness will go forth like brightness. Verse 1, her salvation like a torch, man. It is going to shine. And the nations will see your righteousness too. And all kings your glory. And you will be called, verse 2, 62, by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. One one day is coming when you will have a new name. Go to Revelation chapter 2 for a second. When I was growing up, 
my dad uh, left when I was four years old. And so um, he, he bailed on my mom. This was in Chicago, Revelation 2, 17. And uh, cheated on my mother. My mother was uh, brokenhearted about it. And so uh, a little later, I think I was, I, that happened when I was four. When I was about eight years old, she was dating a man. His name was Bill Pointer. And so I was so desperate to have a dad in my life that I would go to elementary school and I began to take Bill's name. And they called me in elementary school, Mike Pointer. Can you imagine if I really would have had that name? That would have been a weird name, but Mike Pointer. But, but I was desperate to have a dad. And he hadn't adopted me, but I just started calling myself that. I wanted that new name. Well, unfortunately, Bill Pointer turned out to be <laughs> a bank robber. He was giving me all these cool sports things. I was, you know, he was teaching me how to bowl. He'd bring me home new baseball glove and football. Well, the items were literally hot. He was a, he was a thief. One day, the FBI came to our door. Bill had been shaving in the restroom. There was a knock at the door. Bill came to the door. They put handcuffs on my stepdad with shaving cream still on his face and took him away to prison. Then sat down at my kitchen table with my mother and showed photographs where the bank camera had taken photos of him as he came in to rob a bank. The only disguise Bill used was a small goatee that he had glued onto his face. Not a very smart disguise. He ended up in prison. I was no longer Mike Pointer. (laughs) When a bride, when you get married, you take on the name of your husband. I know some women have decided to do the kind of the dash thing. I don't know what that's all about. But, But when you get married, and if anybody has done that in here, we need to talk. No, I'm just kidding. So... You take on your husband's name because your marriage is a huge moment in your life. It means that things are changing. You leave your former family, you leave your mother and father, and you what? Cleave to your husband. The two become one flesh. You cleave to your wife. The new name speaks of a new life. And as a Christian, guess what? You have a new name. Uh, God, uh, you know, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, you shall be called... Peter, there's going to be a new start in your life. I'm, I'm going to speak into your life. Revelation 2.17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. In Revelation 19.12, it says of Jesus, he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except him himself. Apparently, Jesus has a name that we don't know, and we're going to be given a new name that we don't know either. Go back to Isaiah 62. And you will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. This is 62.3. And a royal diadem in, diadem in the hand of your God. God's the one that makes this, this new life beautiful. And it will no longer be said to you, and this relates now to the name, 62.4, forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called, and this relates now to your new name, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married, 
For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. You know, whatever that new name is, brothers and sisters, it has to do with the fact that the Lord delights in you, and you are married to him. You're going to take on, if you will, his name. And it's a good name. It's the best name. And the Lord delights in you, and you will no longer be called, some of you may feel this way, forsaken. Israel certainly could feel that way. I mean, after all, a lot of the setting of Isaiah set in the Babylonian captivity, which lasted for how long? 70 years. That's pretty much a lifetime. If you were born in Babylon and grew up in Babylon, you may never have gotten out of Babylon. And the word on the street was, we're forsaken. But there was a time limit, and it was 70 years. And God says, you will no longer be forsaken, nor will your land be said to be desolate. You will be called, my delight is in her. Some of you have these words, um, hefzibah in the New King James and belu. And those are simply translated into, my delight is in her and married. God, listen, this is important. God delights in you. Did you know that? He delights in you so much that he was willing to go to the cross and die for you that you would be with him. That's how much he delights in you. That's the Lord. And here's the application. You no longer have to be defined by your past. You know, there's a lot of people walking around and all they can think is forsaken. That's, this defines me. I'm forsaken. That person left me. That parent left. That spouse left me. That's me. I'm forsaken. And you know something else about me? Now that I'm forsaken, I'm also desolate. And the Lord says, that's not you. You, you may have been forsaken by people, but the most emphatic promise in the scriptures is I will never forsake you nor will I ever desert you. People may forsake you. People may make promises that don't hold up, but I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. You are called by a new name, and the Lord delights in you. Just as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. More wedding imagery. I think you get the point. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. Listen to this. See if anybody would be this bold to say something like this. And give God no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now, how many of you are that kind of prayer warrior? I'm not going to give, Lord, I'm not giving you rest. Do you remember, was it Jacob? Uh, Genesis 32, right in there, who wrestled with God, and it was all night. And God says, hey, the morning's breaking. Let go. And what did Jacob say? I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm not letting go until you bless me. And Jacob walked away, you remember, that day with a limp. And you know, it's interesting, in the ancient world, when they would make an oath, this happened with Abraham in asking his servant to get a bride for his son from the people of Israel. 
they made the oath by grabbing the thigh of the individual. And they would grab close to your posterity, if you know what I'm saying. And they would say, I'm making this oath by my, basically on my children. And some scholars believe that when Jacob walked away, it was because God was making an oath to Jacob. Saying, if you wonder if I'm going to bless you, here you go. And Jacob never walked the same again. Now, when some of us think about God blessing us, we don't think of it in that way. I want my walk to be blessed, Lord. Okay, here you go. No, that's not what I meant. But sometimes what happens is the Lord works in different ways to maybe open our eyes to different things. And can we say, Lord, I'm not going to let you rest until you make fill in the blank. Until my life is on fire for you. Until this city is saved. Until this loved one, you fill in the blank. Man, if we had that kind of passion and prayer, brothers and sisters, maybe things would change. Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous appeal to the Christians of his day to unite in prayer for revival. At the end of his appeal, he wrote these words, quote, It is very apparent from the word of God that he often tries the faith and patience of his people when they are crying to him for some great and important mercy by withholding the mercy sought for a season. And not only so, but at first he may cause an increase of dark appearances, and yet he, without fail, at last prospers those who continue urgently in prayer with all perseverance and will not let him go except he blesses, close quote. Why did revivals happen? Well, God is sovereign, but I would submit to you it's because people passionately desired to give everything to God. I heard a pastor say the other day that he doesn't see that in the church anymore. He doesn't see the kind of zeal that he saw in the 60s and 70s in the Jesus movement. That, That zeal has waned. And the question is, how can we get it back? See, the Lord has sworn, verse 8, by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. They're not going to come in and steal the, the growth of the land. But those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Might include all of Jerusalem, and you could write down Zechariah fourteen twenty one. And he says, go through, go through the gates, clear or prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, get every obstacle out of the way. Uh, And think of John the Baptist, think of Elijah, lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense is before him. And they will call them, the people will say, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. At the end of the book of Revelation, John writes these words, Jesus speaking, behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Father, we thank you that you've given us 
great and precious promises. Uh, Peter speaks of these magnificent and precious promises. And they are ones that we can stand upon. Sometimes this uh, world is crazy. Sometimes we pray about things and we don't immediately see an answer, but we know you are faithful and you delight in your people. And that's a, a vision of you that we need to get our arms around afresh. You delight in your people. You delight in me. You know my name. And not only that, you're going to give me a new name. And that is a beautiful thing. And no longer will I be called forsaken. No longer will I be called desolate. Instead, I will be the delight of the Lord and married to my God. And Lord, that is just an amazing promise. And I pray for all those who may be struggling with things in their lives, maybe old things that come up from time to time and make them feel like they're not worth anything. I pray that you would show them how much value you place on them so that they can keep their head bowed, their heart bowed, but also in another way, their head high because they know they belong to the King. We thank you in Jesus' name. You've been listening to For Zion's Sake on Walk in Truth, Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 61.4 through 62.12. If you missed any part of today's program, you can listen to Walk in Truth on our free Living Truth app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to our new mini-sodes called A Step Closer. And just so you know, we have free apologetic events from time to time, and they're called 633, and that's based on Matthew 633. Pastor Michael invites special guests, professionals in their fields, to talk about hard topics that affect the culture. In the past, we've had guest speakers that have talked about the issue of racism, Roe v. Wade, miracles, and how we as Christians can talk about those issues. You can watch those talks and many others on our Free Living Truth app and on our website, walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Now, here's Pastor Michael before we go. Well, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I have the privilege of being the senior pastor of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona. Now, I'm one of several pastors. We have an incredible staff, an incredible fellowship, a great loving place, uh, spirit-filled worship. The teaching that you hear on the radio program comes right out of the pulpit of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona. And we would love to invite you to come. Now, if you haven't been to church for a while, we have 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. services every Sunday morning. We have a midweek service on Wednesday nights at 7. We're teaching through the amazing book of Exodus on Wednesday nights and Philippians on Sunday mornings. But something I want to highlight right now is a special 6.33 event we have coming up. And it is on something called the Enneagram. You say, what's the Enneagram? Some of you have heard of it. And it's kind of like this personality test that has become popular in the world and in the church. Here's the question, though. What are its origins? Does it really have any substance to what it portrays or teaches? What are what attracts people to it and what are its dangers? I'm going to have Professor Craig Hawkins joining me on July 17th for the special 633 event 
two Sunday morning services where we will deal with the Enneagram. We're going to really look at it from the standpoint of comparing it to Scripture, doing an honest critique of it. And then we're going to, in the evening, do a little bit more teaching. And then we're going to take your questions on the Enneagram. A special day at Living Truth Christian Fellowship are Sunday morning services on the Enneagram and an evening service for some Q&A with our special guest, Professor Craig Hawkins. Why don't you make plans to join us today? Remember, you can always get information and driving directions to Living Truth when you go to walkintruth.com and click on the church tab. That's walkintruth.com. Click on that church tab. Hey, make your plan to join us on July 17th as we critique and explore the Enneagram. God bless you, and we'll talk to you, Lord willing, tomorrow. And don't forget that Walk in Truth is a listener-supported ministry. Your financial partnership helps us broadcast on this station. How long have you been listening? Could you help us pay for some airtime on this station? Help us continue in this ministry. A monthly partnership of at least $5 a month is all we ask. If you're blessed by this ministry and believe others can be too, please visit walkintruth.com now to donate. That's walkintruth.com. And join us tomorrow for Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 63, 1-6, called, I Have Trodden the Winepress Alone. I'm Mike Massaro. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, where it's our goal to equip you with God's truth to all people.